Section 9 of Over Here and Over There by Private Harry Zodi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. How I Became a 100% American. I was born in Amsterdam, Holland, on September 9, 1894. At a very early age, I showed a great love for books, telling of strange lands, and particularly those describing America, the land of opportunity. I began to dream of America of its wonders, and longed to see my dream realized. I bought and borrowed dozens of Wild West stories. I looked with awe upon pictures illustrating New York, with its tall buildings that seemed to reach the very sky, the majestic Hudson, the wonderful harbor, and the beehive industries of the metropolis. I often told my mother about my ambition to see all these wonders. She tried to discourage me and told me that I could find plenty of happiness and contentment at home, secure in the love and care of my parents. My father, a practical businessman, did not take any stock in a boy's romantic visions. He had mapped out for me a business career and felt that I should follow his ripe judgment in these matters. After a three years course at college, my father decided to send me to Germany to what he considered the most efficient business education. I did not like my stay in the land ruled by the Potsdam gang for I had strongly developed democratic ideas and ideals, and for that reason I could never feel at home among people who worshipped a God-given ruler, and where a brass button was the ultimate expression of power. I was more than glad when after three years of torture I could again behold the dikes and windmills of Holland, my native country. Upon my return home I entered my father's factory in order to become fully acquainted with all details of the enterprise. After this, I spent a little less than twelve months in England, where my father had a buying agency. But here, also, I could not feel at home. There seemed to be a consuming fever within me, which I could not explain at the time, a longing for something altogether different, a burning desire to be among red-blooded people, who that would grasp my hand and say, Come on, be one of us. Thus, much to my father's consternation, I once more appeared in the ancestral home and told him that I had failed to find the realization of my dreams and ambitions. We had quite an argument on the subject, but failed to come to an understanding, as he could not appreciate my longing for freedom and fraternity. In the month of June 1914, the month in which the heir to Austria's throne was assassinated, the clouds that had long threatened to disturb the peace of Europe burst, and then ensued the conflict destined to embroil almost the entire world. Came a period of hysteria. Austria's ultimatum to Serbia was promptly followed by Russia's mobilization, for she was bound to protect her weaker Slav brother. This was followed by Germany's declaration of war, and, as if by magic, Europe was aflame. Then occurred the greatest crime in history, the invasion of Belgium. This wonderful nation refused to bow to might and did its best to stem the tide. Valiantly, those brave Belgians fought against terrible odds, assisted by a small English volunteer force, for England had declared war on Germany immediately upon the violation of Belgium's integrity. Holland found itself in the maelstrom of the conflict, yet, following the example of her southern neighbor, pronounced her rights as an independent neutral nation, and proceeded to mobilize all her available forces for the protection of her borders. Thousands upon thousands of poor, homeless Belgian refugees crowded our land, and I, as a member of one of the improvised committees for Belgian relief, came into close contact with the first victims of German barbarism. I clearly saw that a great wrong had been inflicted on an innocent people, 
and vowed that at some future time I would do my share to avenge this wrong. My venturesome spirit led me into war-stricken Belgium, where I had an opportunity to observe at first hand the result of German culture, industrially applied with the sword and the torch. I was in Antwerp during the bombardment in October 1914, and the morning after the German occupation of the city, while walking around making notes that I intended to use for publication in Holland, I was arrested by German patrol and locked up in one of the cellars of the Hotel Weber, where the German high command had established its headquarters. I knew that I was suspected of being a spy. For over five hours I was kept incommunicado, without light, food, or drink, and I almost suffocated through the lack of fresh air. To my great relief, I at last heard a key grate in the lock. A rough-looking Bavarian ordered me gruffly to follow him to the commanding officer. This fellow began by accusing me, first in English, then in French, of being a spy. His language was picturesque, to say the least, and freely intermingled with curses and vile epithets. When I feigned ignorance of these languages and failed to answer, he pounded his heavy fist on the table and, lapsing into his native German, asked me, What, Zum Donnerwetter, do you understand? This outburst made me smile. Pulling out my cigarette case, I offered it to him and begged him, in fluent German, to taste a cigarette made in England. With a most stupid, astonished look on his coarse features, he accepted my offer and said, Ah, so you speak German. I smilingly assured him of my complete mastery of his language, and told him that he could have saved himself much trouble and aggravation by starting the conversation in German. Furthermore, I produced a duly attested passport, showing my standing as a subject of a neutral nation. He virtually tore the paper from my hand and scowlingly perused it. Finally, convinced of my identity, his mood changed, and he hastened to apologize for the rough treatment I had undergone. To my great amusement, he began to bow so deeply that he almost dipped his nose into a large inkstand on the table. His visa of my passport gave me full liberty to visit all parts of occupied Belgium, and after availing myself of this privilege to the greatest extent possible, I returned home. Before many days had passed, my desire for a better land and a greater future assumed such proportions that I bluntly told my father and mother I was going to try my luck in America. Despite tears and protestations, I carried my point, and leaving the scenes of my childhood without much regret, I set sail for the land of my destiny. Words fail me when I try to describe my emotions at first beholding that wonderful symbol adorning New York Harbor, the Statue of Liberty. For hours I had stood on deck, watching and waiting for a first glimpse of the shores of America. My emotions were many and varied. I felt as if reborn, and from the very moment I stepped ashore, I felt no longer a foreigner, but one of Uncle Sam's, an American. In one way I was disappointed. I had read so much about the Indians, and at least I expected to find myself surrounded by these wild hordes. A fellow traveler directed me to a modest downtown hotel. Another shock awaited me when I emerged from the subway. I suddenly found myself at the foot of one of New York's highest skyscrapers. Hurriedly dropping my suitcase to the sidewalk, I started to count the stories of this wonderful building. Somehow it took me fully thirty minutes to accomplish this feat. For every time I had reached a certain height, some hurried passerby, everybody seemed to be in a hurry, would jostle me so hard that I lost count and had to start all over again. Almost dizzy with excitement and wonder, I finally reached my hotel, and locked up in my room, burst into tears, for it was then that I first began to realize that I was all alone in this vast country. 
In retrospect, I cannot help comparing my arrival in this country with my present standing. Now, after having shown my sincere desire to become one of Uncle Sam's own, I am respected, honored, and backed up by a nation of more than 100 million individuals. Surely I have every reason to feel happy and to be proud and satisfied. After roaming around aimlessly for about six months, the memorable day arrived when I found a real opportunity to demonstrate my inborn Americanism. After showing the utmost patience in the face of repeated insults and broken pledges, my newly adopted country finally found itself compelled to declare war on Kaiserism. The sight of the most beautiful flag ever displayed to the breeze, the sound of that wonderful anthem, praising the land of the free and the home of the brave, stirred my heart to its greatest depth, and it was right there and then that I clearly saw before me the one and only way to become a 100% American. I enlisted in the United States Army as a volunteer, and from the very bottom of my soul came these beautiful words, I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the country for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I soon felt the wonderfully stimulating and invigorating effect of military training. My stature became more erect, I developed a splendid appetite, and both my complexion and my weight improved considerably. I was very proud of my uniform, always trying to live up to the great and honorable part which American soldiers were expected to play in this great crisis. While on furlough in New York, during one of the Liberty Loan campaigns, I applied to the Liberty Loan Committee for permission to assist in the sale of bonds. They asked me if I had any experience as a public speaker, and, to my sorrow, I had to give a negative reply. However, the chairman took an interest in me, and, deciding that he could take a chance with a man wearing the American uniform, assigned me as speaker to a meeting where Governor Whitman, Mrs. McAdoo, wife of the Secretary of the Treasury, Sergeant Guy Emprey, and other distinguished visitors were present. Shortly after receiving my baptism as a public speaker, I stood in front of the Liberty Bank in Madison Square, where a vast crowd had gathered. As much as my limited knowledge of the English language would permit, I pointed out the enormous sacrifices which were to be made by the millions of brave boys our country expected to send over to France. I was completely carried away by my own speech, for it was not only my mouth that spoke, but my heart and soul, too. I told the people that within a few days I expected to go across myself, assuring them that I considered it a privilege and not a sacrifice to offer my life so that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Although I was not a polished orator, I had the audience spellbound from beginning to end because they could clearly see that I spoke with conviction. Then I came to the point where I told them that if I were called up to go over the top, I would gladly go, and if I did not come back, no one would mourn over me. Here I referred to the fact that I was an utter stranger in America. In making my final appeal for subscriptions, my eyes were suddenly arrested and held by those of a beautiful young girl. In those eyes I saw a reflection of my own patriotism. I felt sure that I had her sufficiently interested to be able to sell her a bond, in which I succeeded. Of course, I had no idea at the time that this liberty bond would lead to a marriage bond, but so it proved in the end. The third time I met her we were engaged, and a few days later I sailed for France. While I am proud of the honor bestowed upon me by General Pershing, the honor of being one of fifty men selected from more than a million to represent the army of democracy in its plea for effective backing, I wish to say that I do not see where I deserve this privilege any more than my comrades. 
I have done but my duty as a man, and as a soldier I have gladly fought for a cause that is just. To the above synopsis of my life, I feel inclined to add that since my return to America from the battlefields of France, I have crowned my efforts to become a regular American by marrying a thoroughbred American girl, the girl who bought a liberty bond of me at Madison Square, a perfect specimen of our glorious American womanhood. Private Harry Zodi End of Section 9